A young man had just gotten a job at a produce department where he asked by a, was asked by a lady if she could buy a half a head of lettuce. He replied, a half a head? Are you serious? God grows these in whole heads, and that's how we will sell them. You mean, she persisted, that after all these years I have shopped here, you won't sell me a half a head of lettuce? Look, he said, if you'd like, I'll ask the manager. So the young man marches to the front of the store and says to the manager, you won't believe this, but this, there's a lame-brained idiot of a lady back there who wants to know if she can buy a half a head of lettuce. At this point, out of the corner of his eye, he notices she's standing right behind him. So he adds, and this nice lady was wondering if, you, if she could buy the other half. Later in the day, the manager corners the young man and says, that was the finest example of thinking on your feet I've ever seen. Where did you learn that? Well, he goes, I grew up in Grand Rapids, a city known for its beautiful hockey teams and its ugly women. And the manager's face flushed, and he says, hey, my wife is from Grand Rapids, with a young man replies, and which hockey team was she playing for, sir? And <laughs> so the moral of the story is we have to be careful what we say to people about other people, because here he was saying something a little bit out of ordinary, making fun of a certain people, and here was his own wife. And we've been talking about in this last couple of weeks about the importance of generations and reaching different generations. As we look and we talked about the first week of what's our target, who's our target, and we saw Jesus and the importance of target and the importance of reaching people and the importance of reaching them with the gospel of Jesus Christ and the importance of informing them that Jesus Christ is God in flesh and that the gospel is what's presented to us that will change life, that will set us free from sin, that will give us forgiveness of sin, that will give us the opportunity and the assurance of eternal life. See, that's what the gospel's for. There wasn't a woman who reached out to me when I was a young man, I wouldn't be standing in front of you. If she didn't persist and endure reaching out to me for two and a half years, I wouldn't be standing in front of you. She continued to believe that God was going to save me from my sin. And as I was living that life, this older woman was reaching and loving and caring for me, being that listening post for me, which I needed. Because growing up with parents who didn't speak English, it was hard for me to go to my parents and share my heart let alone their, their understanding what life was here in America because they still were taken back and living in Italy. But it was this woman who continued to reach out and love me and care for me. And then when I kept saying no to her, I wouldn't go to church, she kept persistent to invite me. And then lo and behold, she invites me one last time and I finally go. And I get saved that Sunday. But when I got saved, it wasn't that it, was, it wasn't that it was the preacher that was so, so moving that I listened to him. But it was the Spirit of God that called on my heart. I remember that day very clearly. And I started to emotionally cry, and I looked over to her. I called her mom. I said, Mom, why am I crying? I've never cried like this in my life. She goes, Jesus is touching your heart. And then lo and behold, I walk up to this pastor who's a big guy, works out, and we start a relationship. And then that day I meet Vito and Joanne, and I've never turned back. 
But it was the Spirit of God that drew me. It was this woman who kept reaching out to me, loving on me, and caring for me, even when I kept telling her, leave me alone. I'm going out all night. I won't be home until the morning. Jesus grabbed me, snatched me in, and said, you're mine. I'm going to use you in ways that you can't even imagine. And that's where God wants to do a work in each one of us, crossing generations for the kingdom of God. And that's what we want to do. We want to be about that business. So when we're looking at Paul, he's talking about, as we mentioned last week, because we talked about older men last week. Now this week we're going to talk about the older women. But as we talk about the older men and the older women, one of the things that we have to keep in mind is that these virtues are for all of us, both multi-generational and multi-gender, which is man and woman. So when we're looking at this today, don't think that because you're not an older woman or you're a younger woman, or don't think because you're an older man or a younger man, that these don't um, begin to touch your heart or hold you accountable, because these are virtues that are necessary for that. And so if you would just quickly look with me, there's one of the, one of the things I want us to look at is, is, is Titus chapter 2. And we're going to look at particularly verses 1 through, 1 through 8. I'm just going to highlight, but verses 3 and 4 today. And I entitled this sermon today as Don't Pander in the Slander. Now watch out because we're going to be talking about that because the scriptures are highlighting that. So we're looking in the scriptures and we're going to remind ourselves of what it's saying here. So verse 1 in chapter 2, it says this, but as... For you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith and in love and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good and so train the young women to love their husbands and their children. We're going to stop there because in the coming weeks we're going to look at other verses here. But as you're looking at this verse 3, you have to stop at likewise. Because you have older women. And obviously these are older women are anywhere where we would think 60 and older. And these are older women we're going to talk about. But we have to see that the intentionality here is the word likewise is really a true marker here, even in the Greek. It means a marker of similarity that appropriates identity. What is the likewise? In the Greek where this is no active indicative, no particular uh, active indicative verb to go back to in the present tense. So one would need to return to the prior verse. So there's no active indicative, which means that there's a thought carrying out in the verses. Paul is trying to carry a thought that goes back to the previous thought. And so as we're looking at the previous thought, when he says likewise, he's saying that which he mentioned about the older men. And the importance of the older men and what was held accountable to them. To be sober-minded. To be dignified, as we talked about last week. To be self-controlled. And it's coming up again. And so we have to highlight that. But here's what it's, what it's doing. Paul's not talking about what to do for the kingdom of God, but who to be. So often we are misled to think that what we do is all that matters. But what we do derives from who we are. And too often when we identify who we are, we say by what we do in our career, if I say to everyone, I'm a pastor, then I'm telling you what I do. But who I am is a child of God. I'm a believer. I'm a believer in Christ. 
That's priority number one. Then whatever it means, I know there's, I'm above reproach, as the Bible says, as all of us as leaders are, but yet who I am is who I am in Christ. I'm held accountable before God. And so the importance of understanding that is the doing derives from the being. Because if we get caught up in the doing, then we get into preferences, pleasures, making a point to someone. See, the church advances when the people of God are focusing on God to change our being. That's why we're, the purpose of the believer is to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. The purpose of the church is to make disciples. So if we're to make disciples, we need to be conformed to the image of Christ. And it's important for us to understand that's what we're called to do. Now, the word here in verse 3, if we look at it as well, you see in the ESV it says reverent. And it refers to behavior. In the Greek, it means behavior or demeanor. It even gives the idea of conduct. We talked about it last week when we mentioned about the importance of conduct. We talked about character, conduct, compassion, correction. And then the middle of that, the axle of that circle was consistency. Well, likewise, women the same. They are to be concerned about their behavior and their demeanor, being careful how they conduct themselves. Because the word reverent means to be devout and pious to God. To revere God, not to fear him or be afraid of him, but to revere him for who he is. And we know who we are standing before God. So really it comes to a holy reverence is a holy fear of God. So one would know that he or she is accountable to God. So what does reverent fear mean? It means to submit to God's will. It means to be patient, dealing with long-suffering. It means that in everything we're going through, and we're struggling, we're going through difficult times, we have to be enduring through the hardship, keeping our eyes focused on the Lord. Why? Because our demeanor, our reverence should be toward God, not toward others. It should start with God. Secondly, too, it means to submit to the word of God. And we'll highlight that, especially in 1 Peter 3, 1 and 2. It talks about women submitting to the word of God. Focusing on unity, treating people kindly with sincerity and love, being tolerant of others. And see, that's why it's, it's vital that we... So I, so I, I kind of uh, laid out a chart. I need the uh, monitor here, guys. I need the monitor down here, please. There is uh, a chart here, and it's a stage that every woman would go. So I laid out the different stages um, and the stages of life. Now, I, something I just created... Why is it I, that I created this? Is because in the Hinna Clause, which is a purpose clause in verse 3 going into 4, or even heading 3 into 4, it says, so that, so that. So the reason why a woman, and even likewise a man, would have these character traits or these virtues is so that they can be an example to the younger. You see the point here? It's the so that, it's the purpose clause of why Paul was calling them to do that. And so here's some of the stages that we're highlighting here. Um, number one is this. Stage is that a woman is a young woman. She's single, okay? She, it's the I, everything about the I. It's, she's single. It's when a girl officially becomes a woman. She's 18 years old. She normally begins at the first stage of singlehood. She's not aware of certain unknowns because she's not focusing on marriage or children. She's focusing on a potential career. She's in college. There's some fears, however... For the most part, they need to be put, you know, put on their focus on college. So 
What I'm showing here in this particular stage here is the more we are informed, fear increases. So right now, this young woman is just thinking about the future, but not really concerned too much about it, focusing primarily on the career. But then the second stage comes up, and we see no children, and now it starts with being newly married. So if there's a young woman who has no children, she's newly married, and this does not always represent everyone, but for someone who's married, she finds her dream man. They, they dream of being a new couple. They dream of children. They dream of a new house. They dream that everything will come together in their finances. They begin a new family with excitement for children. The fear begins to increase. They're wondering all these things. Now she has to be concerned about her husband, her children, her house, her finances. What are children going to become? Are they going to become young women, and, 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 and this is a Christian woman, young women and men of faith? She's looking, so the responsibility begins to grow. Now fear increases a bit. She's wondering. She's wondering what would it be like to live? How much money are we going to make? Is my husband going to make enough that I can stay home with the kids? Do I have to work? Then the next stage we have is that now goes from the I, we, now to the us, the young children. You have, a, you have a woman who becomes a mother. The child is born. You don't have instructions with this child. You begin to take care of a, a little six, seven, eight, nine, in my case, almost 10-pound child. The fear increases immensely. You're responsible to nurture and care for this new life. Food, diapers, baby products, baby furniture. I remember those days. I remember when Maria was just eight months old. She couldn't breathe. We were crying. We lost control. We didn't know what to do. It was so new to us. We were freaking out. We went to the doctors. The doctor says, you need to get a nebulizer. I was like, oh my gosh, she's going to die. I didn't even know. All I knew was that my heart dropped and I cried out to God, please save our child. My wife and I were newly, new, new parents. We didn't know. I never heard of this before. We were crying. We were scared. Our fears increased immensely. But then, lo and behold, we found out that sometimes that happens when a child is young. And then the fears decreased a bit. It's kind of like that Love's commercial, if you've seen it. The first kid, the mother's interviewing the babysitter, PhD, making sure she has all her references. I mean, wow. Then by the second child, they said, second child, hands, the ch- hands it to the babysitter. She has a nose ring. She goes, oh, be careful. He likes to pull on nose rings. And here and behold, that's what happens. You start to level up. And when you have children, the fear increases. Then you have a woman that goes into the stage of what we call older children. Now the word they. In this stage, the mother becomes a seasoned pro. She's been through first of everything, cold, sickness, challenges at school, friends challenges, freshman year, identity crisis, bad attitudes, change of life, first breakup or not, learning how to drive. You ever been there? I've been there already. Now, your children are slowly leaving the nest. What happens? Your fears change and still increases. How are they going to make it without me? Who am I now without navigating their lives? I, have, I am no longer have the authority and the final say. They can make their own decisions whether I approve or not. They don't need me. The fear increases and changes. See, the older, the older woman, she struggles with inadequacy, regret, feelings of worthlessness, uselessness, loneliness, low self-esteem, and pity. The bottom line is identity crisis. And what happens is when a woman 
and goes through this, and I'm just speaking woman just for now, the emotions begin to take control of their daily living. And then it could lead to judgment, pride, and arrogance, malice, and anger. It can lead to that. I'm not calling anyone out. It can lead to that. Then you get to this last stage, and it's no children, you and I, saying to the husband, who are you? So much energy was given to the children that the husband and the wife relationship has been ignored. See, it's important to reestablish it. Can I still live with this man? (laughs) Can I love him like I did when we were first married? Let me tell you something. If you're struggling with your marriage right now, I've been married long enough to just hold a little bit of authority here. Ask God to give you a new heart for your spouse. Ask God to rekindle your love. Have you ever prayed for that? I mean, you wake up to the same person every day. It should be a beautiful thing, but you know, things change. All kinds of things change. Body, body parts change. Gray hair. Women have to look at us when we get older. And then we're wondering if they even think we're handsome anymore. And we wonder when they, you know, they get older, they're looking for that young, handsome man. Well, ladies, let me give you some. Pray for that, that we're still looking good and handsome in front of you. (laughs) That we still look like that hot-looking young guy when you first met us. Because, you know, we need to see that, right, Tex? I mean, it's like, we need that. We need to know we're still handsome. You got to remind us. You got to pray for that. You got to rekindle. And I know many of you are happily married, but I'm just saying... We need some of that because that stage can get you. It can get each one of us. We as men need to be encouraged as well. But when older women feel irrelevant, they begin to lash out, just like men as well, finding problems with others, making people the problem rather than looking at themselves. That's when we look back at the word slander. I'm going to give you something. I'm going to open it up here a little bit. You're going to be shocked here, I think, if you haven't studied this passage before. Do you know what the word slander is in the Greek? Here we go. Diabolos. It's the word for devil. Paul made that very, very clear. He used that word. It's the meaning. And see, slander, it highlights the adversary, the enemy. We don't even ever realize that when we're slandering a person. We don't, we're not doing the, we do the work of the enemy, but we don't even realize we're doing that. We get, we're emotionally hurt, we're emotionally in pain, we're emotionally devastated, and we begin to react. It's not any one of us. Slander is not, it's not gender leaning. It's for any one of us. And it's false reports, backbiting, evil speaking, falsely accusing, double-tongued. That's what it means. See, no, so then I go on and I, I ask this question as well. Why do people slander? Why do they slander? Well, our perception is reality. See, we have, uh, we have a lens, each one of us. I've talked about that. An ethnic culture, subcultures, experiences in life. As we get older, we have lenses. We experience things and we create that lens within us. It adds to our lens. And we have a gender lens. We're made differently. We're created differently. So women look at things differently than men do. And that's why in marriages we have to learn about each other. I'm learning and I'm... But I think women have an X-ray vision lens. They just have these senses. It's like my wife, I've seen that in our lives. 
When we were troubled with our child, one of our children, our oldest, she was going through a tough time. My wife has like this seventh sense. She was able to sense something. And I'm like, ah, you're just, you know, you're reading into too much. And here she was right. She goes, don't doubt my seventh sense. I said, no more. I will never doubt it again. And here she does that. It's incredible. She has this like x-ray vision of being able to sense struggle and difficulty. I guess men, we just don't think about it. We're just going on to the next task. But sometimes with an older woman too, there's image that they're concerned about. If I could carry a mirror up here, a mirror is one of those things that we struggle with. A mirror is what we struggle when we look into it. You know, Dennis is going to laugh right now because we were out at the baseball game the other day and you were going back to get, you know, something back at the car. I'm going to be vulnerable and transparent. Talk about image. I'm looking in front of the hotel where we had to go make the payment. I'm like, (laughs) and my wife started laughing. She goes, she said, oh my gosh. And I said, what? She goes, I saw you checking yourself out in that mirror over there. I was like, I just want to make sure my stomach wasn't out too much. I need to get my chest up a little bit. I'm 50 years old now. I got to hold my youth a little bit. But see, that's the thing. Image is always about what we do. (laughs) He's sitting there laughing. All we have to do is understand that each one of us are looking in the mirror, woman or man. We're wondering as we're getting older, what's it going to look like? Because we go through these struggles of insecurity knowing that we're getting older and things have changed. But even older women, when they struggle with fear, divorce, empty empty nesters are one thing that women are struggling with because they have to face this man they haven't faced for some years now, caring for aging parents, illnesses, career changes, relocation. We just went through that. The challenges. But even with image, it starts and stops there. You may hear women say this, did you see the dress that that woman is wearing? She looks like she's, she looks nice. Who is she trying to impress? Or is it she's trying to turn head? She needs to put more clothing on. Or how, how come she makes that dress look so good? How come I can't do that? I mean, I'm hearing this. I'm, I'm, I'm hearing some women, they tell me they struggle with some of that. It's real. It's a reality. It's not something embellished. But the struggle is there, and the perception can create reality. Secondly, this, slandering can be a pattern of behavior. When we evaluate our intentions, they seem very pure, but when they are filtered through our relationship with God and Christ, then God convicts and reveals our sin. In other words, we could not say to ourselves, let me hurt this person by slandering them. I don't believe anybody's really trying to say that to themselves, man or woman, but it could hurt another person if we talk just sharing a prayer request. Because when we share a prayer request, if you notice, like, like conversations go further down to where it starts to demean. See, slandering, it means to demean someone in character, stereotyping someone, even in judgment. And we have to be careful because it often happens. Here's another reason I think that happens too. And you might, this is something that it's kind of what I call the hero syndrome. We feel like All of us here, not just including women, men too, we feel like we are protecting God from bad people. Sometimes we see something happen, and we have to defend the gospel. We need to defend that which is important. It's the truth, the word of God, but we take it further sometimes, and we begin to expand the conversation. And then we think in ourselves we're protecting, we're defending 
God and the church and the word of God, and we become apologists to where we are sitting here and we're defending everything. Even God, don't you worry. I am here to save you, Lord. Don't you worry. I'll back off the bad people. And so you start to do that. And you know, that's when I start looking into the mirror too. I'm like, yeah, I could wear a cape. But here, you know, the thing is, it's like we're trying to do that. And God's like, thank you, but I can defend my own truth. I don't need you to go out there. Just defend the truth, but let me work on people. You don't need to go any further than that. And behold, God is doing it. It's that hero syndrome that we have to be careful because sometimes we're wondering, are we afraid of what could happen? You know, I, I looked up a movie, and uh, I think you'll find this. I'm trying to soften it up a little bit, but this could be reality in the hearts and emotions. There's a movie called Monster-in-Law. I don't know if you've ever seen it, but uh, it's an it's a obvious comedy, but... It, there's some truth to it, because if you could talk to anyone around, the struggle for older women and even older men is no one's going to take the place of my baby. Nobody. And the struggle of that transition, um, I'm a son-in-law. I love my mother-in-law. I call her mom. I call her mommy sometimes, because we've been very close. But there were times that transition was hard, especially in the Italian culture. But my mother-in-law is a great woman. And I, and I had to learn how to transition as well. But I'll tell you, this is a funny take on it. I just want you guys to just kind of look at this. <laughs> You've been so quiet, Kevin. Oh, it's kind of hard to get a word in edgewise with you two. Oh, is he great or what? I tell you, too, that's a little scary. Enjoy it while you can. Here you go, some more coffee. Actually, I was a little nervous about the two of you meeting. Really? Why? Well, because it's important to me. Mom, you're the most amazing woman I've ever known. And Charlie, I've never met anyone like you. You're real, you're honest. And although we've only known each other a few months, I, I feel like I've known you forever. I, I guess what I'm trying to say here is what are you doing for the rest of your life? What? God. Charlie, will you marry me? It's it, it's too sudden. She's in shock. No, I mean I yes. mean I am, but seriously. Seriously. No, no. Say no. Yes. Yes. so happy for you. Oh, oh my god, Now, I I have to have some some fun with that because, you know, obviously I don't think anybody would go that far. It's comedy. But just to think though, there might be some thoughts. And uh, that's why there was that play. Because we have to understand that we can, we can say slandering is something that's just so subtle. We don't even realize we're doing it. And we all do it at times. We're all guilty. It's not if, but when. And we have to stop ourselves from doing it. And so I asked that question, how can we stop? 
the slandering. One is, it's going back to the scripture, sound teaching. Sound teaching, sober doctrine, sound teaching. Look what, I mentioned this before. In Titus 1.9, it's holding the elders to, to a, a higher standard, but it holds to every believer. And he's saying to the leader, he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sober doctrine as to also to rebuke those who contradict it. So we don't have to judge people. We can rebuke it according to the truth, as I mentioned last week. I'm not rebuking anyone in my own experiences. I'm not rebuking anyone because I look at myself and say, oh, I have it all together. Let me go rebuke somebody. If anybody who's being rebuked, it's because of the word of God. And then we know 2 Timothy 3.16 and 17 says that rebuke goes to correction. So we as leaders are not here to rebuke anyone. We have to first look at ourselves. And then he goes on to say this. Paul's highlighting both to man and woman. But as for you, teach what is according to sound doctrine. So it's sober doctrine again. And then you have verse, verse 14 of chapter 2. Who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people of his own possession who are zealous for good works. See, the theme of Titus is good works. The theme of Titus is that if you're sober in your mind, sober in your doctrine, you're going to be sober in your living. And when you're sober in your living, you're doing that which is good. So we have to understand that. We have to stop the slandering by focusing on what is good. What's good? Sound doctrine. And so he goes on to say this in verse 8 of chapter 3. This is a trustworthy statement. And this is saying is trustworthy. I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. Reverence gives an idea of devotion. These things are excellent and profitable for people. They're good. So this is vital in our walk. Secondly, training. We need to be training. It's important. Yesterday we actually had, before I share the scripture with you, Yesterday, we had a multi-generational softball game. We did. We had Billy Baden's father was there, 72 years old. Myself and a few others were in our 50s. We had some in the 40s, some in the 30s, some in the 20s, and my son was there. He was a teen. We had a multi-generational softball game, and us older people hung in there. Even John Watham asked me, he goes, how are you doing today? I said, I feel great. He goes, you're moving. I said, yeah, no injuries. I was even going to text Dennis saying, no injuries today, brother. I'm good. But here's the thing. When I was there at third base, and I took a grounder, and I picked it up, and I threw it, I just barely got it to first. And then I looked at Ray, who we were playing. Ray was playing short, and I said, man, I need reps. He goes, yeah, well, you know, that's what we need. We need a lot of reps. I said, come on, let's throw the ball around a little bit, because see, that's what training is. We need reps. That's why when you see baseball players, you see football players practicing all the time, they're trying to bring almost a perfection to their work so that they get the reps at practice because they may not get many reps in the game. So the training involves doing it every day all the time. And that's what Paul is saying here, training us. It's not something where it's a magic wand. We are trained. He's training us, the Spirit of God, the, the Word of God, the Gospel in verse 11, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. That's what training's all about. Lastly, how can we stop self-control? We have to understand that self-control is vital. Because self-control simply just brings forth the fact that one is in control of oneself 
and prudent. They're wise. Even the fruit of the Spirit, that's one of the fruit of the Spirit, to be, have self-control. And we see that throughout this passage, 1 through 8. You see it in verse 2. You see it in verse 5, self-controlled, same word in Greek. You see it in verse 6, self-control for the younger men. And it goes on and on and on. But here's the thing. When we're not self-controlled, we're out of control. And when we're out of control, fear gets a hold of us. See, the mechanism of fear when we fear is because we want to be in control. It's an issue of control. And even Paul says it in 2 Timothy 1 verse 7. He says, for God gave us not a spirit of fear, but a power and a love and self-control. That's what he's given us. See, the word fear in that passage is lack of mental and moral strength. Cowardice. That's what it means. So Paul is telling Timothy, you're not called to be a coward because you have the spirit of God that lives in you. You're to be bold. You're to be self-controlled, a man of character. Because see, they questioned him as a young man. The elders were questioning him. How could he lead us? Paul was mentoring him. He was discipling him. Paul was mentoring him to be strong in the grace. In verse 2 of 2 Timothy chapter 2. To be strong in the grace. And Paul was learning that, but he had to challenge him. Don't be afraid of your youthfulness. Don't be afraid of others around you. Because you know why? God didn't give you a spirit of fear. But of love, power, and sound mind or self-control. Sober thinking. And that's important for us to understand. So how do we trust? See, how do we trust God more and fear less? Really simple. One, focus on his promises. Focus on his promises. 1 Peter 3, 6 says even to the woman, And Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children. If you do good and do not fear anything, that is frightening. I mean, Peter saw that too. Because of the fear they had with Nero killing Christians at the time when this was written. Secondly, we need to praise him. We need to focus and trust God, fear less, and praise him. I mean, it's quite simple. Even Hebrews 13, 15, 16 says this. Through him, then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of our lips that acknowledge his name. See, when we praise God, we're not looking at others. When we praise God, we're not looking at ourselves. You know, let me flip the coin a little bit. You might say, you know, Bruno, I don't really want to slander anyone. I get it. I don't think anyone in their hearts are saying, I want to intentionally slander someone. But here's the thing. The challenge is this. Have you ever slandered yourself? Have you ever looked at yourself and demeaned yourself? Have you ever looked in the mirror and said, you don't like what you see? Have you ever looked at yourself and said, I don't like the way that I am? Have you ever said that to yourself? Now, I can raise my hand and say, I have. (laughs) I'm sure each one of us could if I asked you to raise your hand. But the question is this. When I mentioned before about protecting God from other people, we're not really protecting God when we're trying to defend the gospel. We end up attacking God. Let me share what I mean. God created you and I for a purpose. When he created you, you have a unique DNA. He looks at you and you are beautiful to him. Beautiful created for a purpose. 
And God wants to use you. But when you and I, when we're demeaning ourselves, God's saying, why are you demeaning that which I've created? You're attacking me when you do that. You're saying that I wasn't good to create you. And you, you know, again, it's not intentional. It's unintentional. It's not as though we wake up in the morning and say, I don't really want to put myself down. But it ends up going that way because in the flesh we do that. We look at others. We compare ourselves to others. We place our focus on others instead of placing our focus on God. See, when we praise him, we place our focus on God. We learn to trust him more. And when we praise him, we acknowledge that what he created us is good. You know, most people who either are depressed or want to commit suicide because they just don't like themselves. And they're comparing themselves to everyone else. God's saying, stop doing that. Look to me. Do not neglect to do good and share what you have for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. The next time you look at yourself in the mirror, next time you look at yourself, thank God for him creating you. Do what I do. Look in the mirror and stick out your chest. Say, yes, Lord. Yes. Yes. So the belly's out farther than the chest. No problem, Lord. I'm still good. Because you gotta, you got to laugh at yourself a little bit. you got to have some fun. you got to enjoy life. You can't sit here and get so serious that we forget. But we have to be praying and praising God, and it's hard, and it's challenging. I'm not saying it's either, but we need to be praying. I'm just trying to say that at this point, it's hard. We have to submit ourselves. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. You know, humility doesn't mean that you have to put yourself down. Humility and weeping and mourning is a good thing because that means God cares enough to work with you. God cares enough to lift you up. God cares enough to expose something so that you can become more conformed to the image of Jesus. We don't want to give up. We want to be able to say, God, help us through that. See, in light of all of this, people don't remember what you say more than they remember how you live. And see, this passage is really simple to me. It's the being, it's not the doing. So when we sin, not if, but when we sin, and when we slander, and when we pander in the slander, God's saying, hold on, come back to me, focus on me, surrender, ask God to do a work. You know, I just, I want to I encourage you, maybe um, you're at this place where you have been struggling with comparing yourself towards others. You're struggling with fear in your life. It's possible you've been comparing yourself to your brother or your sister and you're an older person now. It's possible that you're older and you're comparing yourself to a good friend. It's possible that you might be struggling with being a person who really believes God has something good for you. I want you to understand that. Who are you slandering? Is it another person? Or is it you? I want to just give you a moment right now as we are about to transition into communion, just to give you a moment and to reflect. Maybe it's something that you haven't even thought about. Maybe you realize you're struggling, but you don't know what it is. It's possible it's you. And it's okay. I'm one of those yous. It's me. I look at myself and say, Bruno, what is it that you need to get right with? So I want to give you a moment. I want you to bow your heads and just close your eyes. No one's looking. 
No one's looking. Please, no one's looking. This is because I'm your pastor. I just want to get an idea. Please. How many of you can resonate and agree that you're struggling with either someone or yourself, that you even get, get caught demeaning yourself? Just slip up your hand. Thank you. Wow, that's a lot of people. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for your honesty, your transparency. Thank you. I have my hand up with you. How many of you want God to come in and work on that so that he can change you and conform you to the image of Jesus? Just raise your hand again. How many of you want to do that? There's more hands. Wow, there's more hands now. Wow. Well, I want to pray for you right now. Father, I pray for your people. I pray for Grace Church. Lord, none of us want to slander others. It's not something directly seated in our hearts. But, Lord, we do it, and we sin, and we fall short. Paul, the apostle, wrote this in your word and highlighted that it's diablos. It's the work of the enemy. God, I pray you would convict us. I pray that you would bring repentance. I pray that you would bring a people who will come clean and say, Lord, this is true in my life. Please help me, set me free. And Lord, I pray that through it that your name will be glorified in it. Lord, be glorified. Change us, conform us to the image of Jesus Christ. Do a work in us that only you can. It's your work, it's your inner work. It's you transforming the heart. It's like what we talked about last week, the character that you only can work on. God, please do it in our church. Because we can't reach those who are outside if, you can't, if we can't see that you have to do a work in us first. So God, do that, we pray. That is our passion, Lord, as we look to you in Jesus' name. Amen and amen.